We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Mad Matt Taylor is in the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Summer arrived this morning at 10.58. Today is the longest day of the year. Hopefully, that's a good thing for you. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Welcome to the show. It is. It's the first day of summer. Does it feel like it for you? 11, or sorry, 10.58 this morning it arrived. Uh, immediately the, the birds started to chirp a derpin and uh, everything was just uh, rosy. It was beautiful. Uh, so enjoy it. Uh, tomorrow, the first full day of summer. So then you can enjoy it all over again. What the heck, right? Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. You can join us for Hamilton's favorite game show, Hammerhead Trivia, coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Uh, Matt Taylor on the board. Uh, because it is the first day of summer, summer arriving this morning, uh, playing all summertime songs, going in and out of the segments. There you go. Feel good, feel happy, feel, uh, yeah, in the weather. You know, you can't argue with that. Although we are seeing that there might be some unsettled conditions coming towards the weekend. But hey, who cares about that? It's the first full day, uh, sorry, first full, uh, first day of summer arriving this morning at 10.58 a.m. All right, lots going on today. Uh, sad news. Uh, those two missing RCAF members have been uh, recovered near Petawawa. Of course, the Chinook helicopter going down. Uh, in the middle of the night late yesterday, early yesterday morning, and uh, two uh, crew members survived and are actually out of the hospital, from what I understand, and uh, obviously two missing in the accident uh, have been recovered. So sad news there. And uh, the submarine, the Titanic submarine, um, uh, well, it's actually a submersible. It's not a submarine, you know. It's a submersible. In case, you know, that's a question on the exam. So uh, anyway, uh, apparently Canadian uh, officials, Coast Guard officials have uh, have heard noises. Now, whether that is any relevance or not, but they are obviously, uh, you know, expanding their search area, bringing more and more equipment in and trying to follow uh, those sounds and see exactly uh, where that can lead. But obviously, uh, as this gets into... Uh, this day after I guess losing contact on Sunday obviously concerns about air and such if you know my goodness uh, who knows there's lots of variables here and lots of things that people are are contemplating may have happened but the extensive search and rescue has entered a third day and um, at the end of the day the only real news that we have is these noises uh, that apparently have been reported. Rescuer, rescuers have been racing against the clock uh, because even under the best of circumstances, the vessel Ocean Gate Expedition's Titan could run out of oxygen as soon as tomorrow morning. That's Thursday morning. A glimmer of hope came Wednesday morning when the U.S. Coast Guard said in a statement that a Canadian aircraft had detected noises uh, underwater. So a Canadian aircraft had detected the noises 
underwater. It's a Canadian P-3 aircraft uh, in the search area detected these. Operations were relocated in an attempt to explore the origins of the noises. Those ROV searches have yielded negative results. Uh, but continue. Uh, the statement did not elaborate on what rescuer, rescuers believe the noises could have been. Uh, in underwater disasters, a crew unable to communicate with the surface rely on banging on their submersible's hull to be detected by sonar. Again, they're, they're way down below the continental shelf here. However, no official uh, has publicly suggested that the cause and the noises underwater uh, come from a variety of sources. So again, unsure there and that is continuing as to be uh, part of the investigation. While it's too early to say what had happened to the Titan, experts have offered insight into some of the most likely scenarios. According to Ocean Gate's website, uh, the Titan has an acoustic link with its surface vessel, the Canadian icebreaker Polar Prince, which communicates using a transponder on its end and a receiver on the receiving end. This link allows for underwater acoustic positioning and for short text messages uh, to be sent between the uh, two vessels, uh, usually basic status information on, on what is going on. Given that the Titan is a battery-operated submersible, uh, and has lost all contact with its surface festival, uh, vessel, it may have, in fact, lost power. While these types of vessels typically have an emergency backup power source, it's unclear if the Titan had an independent battery for this. Um, a power failure is considered the best-case scenario for the 20,000-pound Titan. Experts have said that if the submersible's inbuilt safety system is operating properly, there is a chance the vessel could drop additional weight and return to the water surface. But then again, uh, nobody knows exactly what happened like an hour and 45 minutes in when they lost contact. Was that just a communications thing? Was it a complete power failure? Uh, was it a structural failure? A structural failure within uh, the submersible itself. You just don't know. Uh, some have said there is a chance the Titan has surfaced and is bobbing up and down on the top of the water already. It's just a matter of time until it's spotted by uh, rescue crews. The bad news is if the passengers are stranded on the top of the water, um, they're pretty much out of luck until somebody finds them because the vessel's main capsule has no way of getting out. Uh, they have to be opened from the outside. He recalled from his close-up with the t t uh, Titan last November uh, that the passengers are sealed into the sub before they begin their expedition. expedition. Crews apply more than a dozen heavy bolts from the outside, which must be removed by an external crew in order to uh, to exit. So again, this just makes uh, the situation even more complicated. Finding the submersible is one thing. Getting it to the surface, depending upon where it is and, and at what depth it is, is a completely different story, which is why they're trying to get as much heavy equipment to that area as they can. But again, you're talking about a massive area. Uh, one report saying, uh, you know, twice the size of Connecticut. So that's quite an area, even to find something that's, you know, bobbing up and down. Uh, also, a chance that the, tit the Titan is snagged on something in the water, perhaps a piece of the shipwreck or a large fishing net. Uh, the wreckage of the Titanic, which came to rest approximately 4K below the ocean surface, is a hazardous area with debris all around it. You don't really hear much about this, but they say there are parts and pieces all over the place. It is quite dangerous. And a lot of that stuff is floating around. Because the vessel lost contact with one hour and 45 minutes into its trip, the crew may have been close to 
or at the bottom of the ocean. So, again, uh, everybody waiting and seeing for and praying for good news uh, on that uh, Titan submersible, which uh, obviously uh, lost contact with its mothership uh, on Sunday. We will continue to follow that story and bring you any breaking news as it does arrive. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. First day of summer, yeah, arriving this morning at 10.50 a. Go put something else on. I don't know. Where's your trunks? Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. All right, you certainly have heard of Collective Arts Brewery over the years, and you know what? It... <laughs> This is coming into their 10th year. Collective Arts Brewery has been a hit with craft beer drinkers from Hamilton and across the province since they opened back in 2014. And the praise keeps coming. They just were voted the best brewery in Ontario in an online survey. Patio is in full swing. Local events and drop-ins continue. Let's bring in Matt Johnson, CEO and co-founder of Collective Arts Brewery, and is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm well. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, congratulations, uh, another survey and another thumbs up. That's always nice. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, really appreciate uh, appreciate the love. So, uh, so is to someone who's never been there, has no idea what this is about, explain what Collective Arts Brewery is. Yeah, for Collective, uh, Collective Arts, we're about a fusion of creativity of the, the beverages we make and the artists uh, that we um, you know, champion and support uh, on all of our packaging and through all of our events. And we, we bring that sort of creativity of, of uh, you know, beverage and art and music to life in our spaces. So we have uh, our main brewery is in Hamilton and we have uh, you know, a large patio and, and beer hall here. And then in Toronto, we actually have a tap room that is just, it feels like you're, going down the most epic uh, street art gallery in the world. It's just amazing murals done by uh, all the all the artists that we work with. And then we actually have two pop-ups right now, one in the Byward Market in Ottawa, as well as uh, in Union Station in Toronto. Why has this worked for you? Why is why has this whole thing come together and, and proved to be quite successful? Uh, craft beer drinkers are very experiential and... Um, and it is very much about creativity. And in the past, it was always about creativity of the liquid. And for us, we really want to be uh, look, look past that and just be inspiring in creativity in all forms. And so, um, you know, being purposeful about uh, champion artists, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, people appreciate the arts. Arts are under-supported right now, and they appreciate the arts, and it's inspiring. So I, th- I think just... Uh, that all uh, came together and and um, and sort of grabbed everyone's attention and and excitement. Are you surprised where this has gone after ten years? <sighs> no, it's been a lot of hard work, <laughs> mm. uh, uh, and it still is. It's it's uh, you know it's it's uh, it's not the easiest uh, industry to be in, but mm. it, you know it's we work with amazing people, and so we you know. Um, you know, we we enjoy the challenge of it, but uh, um, no, we're, we're we love it, and it's uh, you know the hard work just makes uh, enjoying the product that much more rewarding. What are some of your biggest challenges still? 
Well, um, you know, still in Ontario, majority, you know, majority of, you know, beer sold is, uh, you know, produced either, you know, by multinational corporations or by, you know, imported products. Um, so, you know, craft beer is still underdeveloped in, in the province of Ontario. So I think that's uh, one of the biggest things is, uh, you know, needing to have more people want to support local, support Canadian and, uh, and champion uh, their local producers, which really were the ones bringing the jobs uh, and, and not the multinationals. So uh, more, more on that side of just growing the category. Um, you know, for us, there is only so much space in LCBL stores. So trying to, uh, and there's a bit of a, a challenging retail market in, in the province. Uh, so making sure we can actually get the product in front of our drinkers and, um, you know, the, the seltzer category is, you know, retailers have chosen to put out a lot of space in for them. And that's uh, made it more challenging for, for craft brewers to be displayed. And probably the biggest one of all is just the margins. Inflation has been really challenging. Taxation has been really challenging. And so uh, it, it creates for really tight margins for a lot of producers, including us. Uh, because it is very capital intensive, very labor intensive, uh, labor intensive, and we want to sell our products at an affordable price, and so it really squeezes us. So, you know, those would be the biggest challenges that kind of keep me up every day. How are our habits changing as far as? Uh, whether it's beer, wine, seltzers, you talked about that was growing. Uh, we've heard craft beer still increasing, but uh, mainstream breweries not so much. Um, how is this all changing? Yeah, it is. It is changing a lot. I think there's blurring of lines, but blurring of lines between the categories. Uh, you know, seltzer was a, a hot trend uh, in the U.S. As always, it takes a little bit longer to come up here. Uh, that is, but that's a cyclical trend. You know, think of over the years, <laughs> from the wine coolers to the Mike mm. to the Palm Bay to the White Claws, they all have you know cycles. Um, but you know, that's a noisy cycle right now. Um, but uh, so I think there's blurring of lines of what people are looking for. You know, for us, we've really diversified what we produce uh, anywhere that we can bring you know, great flavorful products to life. So we, we've uh, participated in a lot of these evolving trends. We produce beyond, beyond our, our, our really flavorful craft beer. We're actually now have entered the lager category with collective lager. And that's the biggest of all the beer categories to so making sure we compete there, but also uh, canned cocktails Non-alcoholic beverages is a big trend and a growing trend, and so mm. we've uh, taken a big um, uh, effort uh, to participate there and provide better, better, more engaging options there. Um, so, uh, and we actually have a sister company that um, you know that participate in uh, that produces cannabis beverages. So we've really sort of tried to take our creativity of just beverages and support of emerging artists and bring that to where the where the how the trends are evolving. Matt Johnson with us, CEO and founder, co-founder of Collective Arts. You can find out more at collectiveartsontario.com. Uh, the brewery uh, getting another thumbs, uh, thumbs up from an online survey. Check it out. Lots of interesting things going on. Collectiveartsontario.com. Matt Johnson, CEO and co-founder of Collective Arts. Matt, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks. Really appreciate it.
It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, that 80 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. First day of summer arriving this morning at 1058. See, you feel different, don't you? Already? Come on. You got the shoes and socks off. You're, jun- you're running through the daisies. Look at you go. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia after the 5 o'clock news. 905-645-3221. Uh, today is National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. There have been and continue to be events taking place across the city uh, to commemorate the event. One such is an evening of music, art, and conversation taking place tonight at the historic Westdale Theatre. And to talk more about that, and life at the Westdale. Neil Miller is with us, Executive Director of the Westdale. Neil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thanks, Scott. I am well. How are you? So far, so good. So, Neil, first of all, let's talk about the Westdale. What's life been like uh, for you guys there, especially coming out of a post-pandemic? Are you back to normal? Are you up to, to full swing? What's yeah. it been like there well, for you? post-pandemic is uh, one of our favorite phrases. We are post-pandemic. Things are going really well. Um, everything is almost back to normal. Uh, and for the summer season coming forward, full slate, full schedule planned? Yeah, we have a ton of fun stuff. Lots of family programming. Uh, we have Pixar Summer. We have all of the um, Indiana Jones movies and uh, just a whole slate of fun entertainment. Some good concerts. We have Art Fest coming up this weekend. Uh, free comedy show on Saturday night. So, yeah, things are uh, things are jamming for sure. Uh, to those that may not have set foot in the Westdale for a while, tell us, take us for a little quick uh, tour with our eyes closed. What's it like in there now? Yeah, so it's a little gem in the heart of Westdale Village. So it was built originally in 1935. It was the first movie theater in Hamilton built for talkies. So uh, motion pictures with sound. Um, and what we did is we gutted it and we completely uh, revitalized it and restored it to its original splendor. So it's this like really magical art deco theater in a strip mall in Westdale village. Um, but uh, now we just don't show movies. We're a cultural hub. So music conversation, exactly what we're doing tonight for national indigenous people's day. Let's talk a little bit about that, Neil. What do you have planned for national? Indigenous yeah, we have people's a really uh, interesting and informative and I think fun evening. So it's hosted by Shane Pennells, who's a, a local filmmaker and, artist. Uh, so Shane's put together an evening with uh, singer-songwriter Lacey Hill, singer-songwriter Gail Obadiah, and uh, artist and filmmaker Cher Obadiah. And everyone will present their work, they'll, you know, their songs, their music, their stories, and then to culminate the evening, uh, they'll have a conversation on stage about really what is National Indigenous Peoples Day? What does it mean to be um, an artist? What does it mean to be an Indigenous artist? And, and what, how does this all lead to, a, uh, to, to get us closer to reconciliation? Response for evenings like this. Uh, people are certainly a lot more aware, paying a lot more attention and a lot more interested. Yeah, you know, the response to this has been incredible. So it's a free event. Um, it's funded by Heritage Canada. Uh, so we are able to offer it at no charge, but we have like over 200 people have registered for tonight. Um, so there, there is uh, a need for in the community for, for events like this. So the, the interest has been extraordinary. So over the course of the evening, uh, not only conversation, but also music as well. Yeah, music. Uh, Lacey Hill and Gail Obadiah uh, will be giving us some really just amazing music.
And as far as the presentation, what does this look like? Uh, is it everything over the course of the evening? How long does the evening yeah, last? So it starts start at 7 o'clock. Seven. It's about a two-hour show. Um, it's hosted by Shane. So Shane will, you know, guide us through the evening, and each artist will uh, present their their work. And it, like a, they'll, it'll culminate in the, in the end with a, a conversation. What about clientele at the Westdale? Is it the same neighborhood always coming in? Are you getting people from across the city? Are you getting no, people you know from what? areas outside uh, the city to come into events like this? Yeah, our audience is really diversifying. So we have like, you know, our hardcore hardcore Westdale folks, like people who live within a kilometer of us, but we're really seeing the, the demographics change. So uh, newcomers to our city are coming to the Westdale Families are coming. Uh, we have a lot of really great family programming. We have sensory-friendly screenings. Uh, so we're really seeing the audience change, and it's uh, it's exciting because we were we were only open for such a brief period before the pandemic. We really didn't have a good sense of who um, our audience was, um, hmm. and now we're learning that it's uh, it's a wide range of folks. McMaster students. I mean, they're off right now. But when they're here, they're they're at the West Hill all of the time. So it's really encouraging to see uh, how many different folks come into the theater. How do you pick programming? What's your objective here? What do you, uh, and again, now you're uh, noticing post-pandemic that it's a lot broader than perhaps initially thought. How, yeah. how do you decide on where, which so, direction to go in? Yeah, it's definitely way broader than before the pandemic. So before the pandemic, I would say we would classify ourselves as primarily an art house. So independent cinema. Um, with a, a strong focus on Canadian cinema. Um, but post-pandemic, uh, we are still that. It is absolutely our mission to show quality independent film. But we lean a lot more on repertory film. Uh, so films that we all know and love and a lot of films that we might not necessarily know. So a, a strong focus on rep programming and then family programming has become really important to the mix. Um, and then these community partnerships with uh, different organizations in our city and a focus on music and conversation. So it's, uh, it's not just a local indie cinema. It's, uh, it really is, in every true sense of the, the phrase, a, a community hub. And great idea to bring the family aspect into it and, and more that will include the kids because this generates interest in the building moving forward. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're always looking to build new audiences and what better way to start than with families. Uh, I think what a lot of us learned during the pandemic is uh, being at home in the in the basement watching movies is fun, um, but it's way more fun when you're in a group full of people. Um, so, you know, and our family programming is not only is it accessible um, because we show it with open captioning and we have sensory friendly screenings, but it's also economically feasible. It's eight bucks a ticket. Uh, so you can bring a family down and, you know, we have concession combos and the whole gang can come down for 40 or 50 bucks. And, you know, it's something about seeing a classic uh, film in, in a classic uh, establishment like that, that it just, uh, whether you've seen the movie a million times, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So what time do things get underway tonight? Uh, how do we find out more? Tonight, 7 o'clock uh, at the West Hill. Go to the westhill.ca. It's right on our homepage, and uh, you can reserve a th- free ticket. And, uh, yeah. All yeah, right, you can find there. out. 
You can find out more at thewestdale.ca. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. Events going on across the city, including tonight, an evening of music, art, and conversation taking place at the historic Westdale Theatre. Neil Miller has been with us, Executive Director of the Westdale. Neil, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Enjoying the first day of summer, arriving today at 1058. Uh, feel free, jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word at 905-645-3221. Don't forget Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Uh, you might remember we talked about this a couple of days ago with Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch when he had put out a piece that basically said the Prime Minister and the Liberals were under investigation for um, obstruction of justice, the whole SNC-Lavalin affair, Jody Wilson-Raybould, you remember that, uh, and asked for information. He was sent information with a, a, a great portion of it redacted, saying that there was an ongoing investigation. Then about eight or nine hours later, the RCMP issue a statement that says, no, there's no investigation, as if it had been reported incorrectly, which it hadn't. And it turned out that um, I, I guess the uh, RCMP wasn't going to tell us when the investigation was over or when it was actually happening. Uh, it's a very bizarre situation and another big lack of uh, the left hand knowing what the right hand is doing. Uh, let's bring in Carson Jarema, RCMP obfuscations come to Justin Trudeau's rescue in the uh, SNC-Lavalin scandal. Conflicting claims from the Mounties about when the government was under investigation are at best bureaucratic incompetence. Carson is here now. Carson, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Hope you're well, too. Thanks for having me. So this is a little bizarre because we talked to Doff Conacher both yesterday and the day before when the story broke and then commenting on what the heck had happened. Uh, he had asked for information on this, and then a great portion of it was redacted simply because, well, as they said, the investigation was ongoing. Of course, he reported that. Others jumped on board. And then the RCMP offers a um, uh, a statement saying that no no this was open uh, or over rather in january how are we squaring this and and it almost appear appears like it's not the rcmp's fault here or whoever's fault it, it, it's the media uh well i don't i wouldn't necessarily say that this is the media's fault so we had a story up monday morning uh, based on an interview with uh uh, Dr. Conacher and uh, and uh, reviewing of his documents. One of our reporters had a story about this investi- about the the government's sort of the RCP's claim that the investigation was ongoing, and the RCMP did not respond to response right away. So we post the story as we often do, and then you update with commentary later, as is common practice. So, but then about um, six o'clock Eastern time, uh, the RCMP tweeted out and just said with no context. We're, there's no investigation. Then later, approximately almost 12 hours after our initial inquiry to the RCMP, this is, oh, okay, that was the information we had at the time. Actually, we were investigating. There was an investigation concluded in January. So um, the idea that that was that it was false. I mean, you know, social media and our and some critics. Um, you know, are saying that it was false, that there was no investigation, that the story was made up. Well, that's not what happened. It's just the RCMP were were considering chart. I guess they were considering charges and didn't completely close the file until January. But the uh, the 
branch of the RCMP that handles access to information <laughs> requests was not made aware of this even four months later. So today, RCMP, we have a story up today on the National Post site from uh, one of our Ottawa Bureau reporters who said, who you know, reported that the who the RCMP have told we made a mistake. We should have released all the information. We should have released the information that Duff Conacher requested through his Access to Information Act. Um, we, you know, we were mistake. We were mistaken in saying that there was an investigation was ongoing because it had concluded in January. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily put that as an as a as a mistake of the media. That is, the RCMP changed, uh, gave it three different statements, um, had three different comments. First. The investigation is ongoing, so we can't give you this information. Two, there is no investigation. Three, oh yes, there was an investigation, but we already closed it, and um, they 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 kept changing what they said. Uh, is this the first news we've heard of them closing it in January? Was it ever announced back then that yeah, nothing to see here, this is closed? I am not aware of that personally, but I can't say that definitively. That was that that was never announced or reported. I, I, I don't I don't personally recall um, that myself. Uh, will will Duff Conacher or Democracy Watch get this redacted information now? Is this just a knee jerk reaction? Well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna redact a lot of this and then just say it's under investigation. Is this just a default for them, or was this lack of communication? I believe this was a lack of communication. My my assumption. I'm just looking at the story quickly. Um, my assumption is that the information uh, would be released. Um, well, yeah, my assumption would be that the, the information would now be released. I think it was, I think it was, I think it was an error. I think it was a mistake. Um, but like on their part, like what it was, the mistake on their part was they did not release the information that was requested. And then they further, they made further mistakes by responding to it in different ways to the media. Uh, lots of situations, it seems, lately, Carson, of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. Is there a common thread here? I think that um, there is, uh, like, in, in, I'm assuming you mean, like, within the government. Like, I, th I think there is a lot of, the government feels, like, quaky. It feels like it's constantly, like, creaky. I don't know what the right word is, but, like, you know, the government has grown quite a bit under Justin Trudeau, I wrote a column about this um, mm -hmm. during the strike, uh, the, the public service strike, like the, the government has like, the government has not been shrinking. There is more and more government, a lot more government than we were had in 2015, but a lot of it isn't working properly. So you can't get, you know, so the, there was like about passports last year. Um, and then, and so just like, there's just, as the government grows, it's not necessarily performing better and some of this is just the kind of thing that happens in governments you know you have bureaucratic uh and also big organizations right one uh department doesn't know what the other department is is doing um it certainly feels like it's the kind of thing that is happening more and more with the with with different um hmm. different parts of the, of the of the federal government um but i just feel like it's it's sort of also just the nature of government to be uh, not very efficient. Comment editor with the National Post, Carson Jarema, has been with us. The latest uh, RCMP obfuscations come to Justin Trudeau's rescue in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Uh, Carson, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Sounds like the first day of summer to me.
Good afternoon. It is 409. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Summer arriving, 1058 this morning. Can't you feel it? Don't you feel better? Take your socks and shoes off there. Just let the toes in the grass there. Isn't that nice? Uh, yeah, and not a bad day to uh, welcome in the first day of summer. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us a last word. You can join us one hour from now for Hammerhead Trivia. Your chance at big cash and prizes coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Big stories of the day, of course, other than the first day of summer. Uh, those two missing RCAF members have been recovered uh, near Petawawa, uh, the Chinook helicopter crash we were talking about yesterday, uh, two surviving and two unfortunately losing their lives in that accident uh, yesterday. Uh, The submarine, the Titan sub, uh, submersible, sorry, it's not a sub, it's a submersible uh, that has gone missing or lost contact with as of Sunday. Uh, still uh, trying desperately to locate it. Uh, the search area has been expanding, and uh, they have heard some noises. Uh, now, whether that is any sort of revelation or from outside sources, not sure yet, but uh, obviously uh, that's uh, some hope, some hope as uh, that uh, that search continues. And Canada Bread fined $50 million for price fixing. Remember the story back in 2007 and 2011, from 2007 to 11, uh, Canada Bread accused of and uh, fined $50 million as a result of all of that. All right, uh, coming up on the show, uh, some interesting stuff. Brian Mulroney, former progressive conservative prime minister from 84 to 93, has uh, stood up for Justin Trudeau, saying he'll be remembered for handling the pandemic as well as any other world leader. Really? All I remember is um, getting our vaccines four to six months behind the rest of the developing world. I remember conflict between Health Canada and NACI uh, uh, talking about vaccines and giving six times conflicting information on vaccines. And as a result of that, AstraZeneca, which was really used to save Europe at the first early stages of this, it was virtually non-used in Canada because everybody was waiting for Pfizer uh, or Moderna or or such. So I'm not sure how well we did there. And then, you know, pick a fight with the truckers uh, after 90% of us are vaccinated with the first dose and picks a fight with the other 10% who aren't in, uh, vaccinated. So I'm not sure he handled uh, any of that crisis well at all. I will give him credit for bringing... Um, uh, more attention to indigenous issues, creating truth and reconciliation day, and then of course going surfing on the first one and not even attending, uh, and legalizing pot. But other than that, I really can't think of anything uh, that the prime minister has done that really makes Canada any better than what it was. The size of the government is increased by thirty percent, and the left hand doesn't have any idea what the right hand is doing, whether it's election interference, whether it's RCMP. Who knows? So uh, I'm not sure why uh, Mulroney is is sucking up to Justin Trudeau other than the thoughts of a public inquiry into the liberals in uh, alleged Chinese Communist Party interference will uh, somehow involve him 
and the rest of the Laurentian elite, just like it did David Johnston. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not sure what this is. Uh, uh, I've also heard in rumblings that the Harpers, the Harper clan doesn't like the Mulroney clan. And, of course, Pierre Polyevra is part of the old Harper clan, not the Mulroney clan. So whether that has anything to do with it, I don't know. But uh, uh, to say that uh, he will go down being remembered for how well he did things and not the trash and the rumors and the gossip, the trivia trash, the trivia and trash, or with rumors and gossips that we hear in Parliament. Uh, quite, the quant- quite the contrary, uh, Mr. Mulroney. With all due respect, I think that's exactly what he'll be remembered for. Because right now, uh, the scandals and, and the screw-ups and the miscommunication, uh, I mean, my goodness, the Prime Minister was talking about two dead soldiers yesterday before the defense, national defense had even called off the search uh, that information being confirmed today so my goodness uh i i don't know how you could look back on much of what the prime minister's done and said yeah we're better off now than we once were but we'll chat about that coming up a little later on uh, also civil servants uh working to not directly answer opposition's parliamentary questions even the speaker of the house has weighed in on this uh, it seems like communication seems to be a massive issue for this government, and and, and now we're, we're finding out that public servants aren't really uh, being as neutral as they're supposed to be. We'll chat about that coming up a little later on this hour as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London, celebrating the first day of summer, arriving today at 11.58 a.m., and then we're going to celebrate tomorrow the first full day of summer. Why? Well, why not? Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word at 905-645-3221. Uh, we talked at length on this show last week when the news broke that uh, Paul, Ber- uh, Paul Bernardo, of course, uh, serial killer, you know the all the story about uh him and his wife and what they did uh and such uh we heard the news that uh, that paul bernardo had been moved from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison uh nobody seemed to know about it uh the families didn't know about it till the last minute and of course uh the government uh both the prime minister and marco mendicino saying they didn't know anything about it despite the correction services saying that they told um, the safety minister's office three months in advance and then uh, a couple of days before he was actually transferred and yet the government seemed to not get that information for some reason now we find out in a recent tweet from conservative senator don platt of manitoba uh, and get ready because if what you heard before made your blood boil this is going to put you over the edge conservative senator don platt of manitoba has stated that the federal government quote fought the families of Kristen french and leslie mahaffey in court to prevent them from obtaining the information they needed to prepare for the parole parole hearing of paul bernardo from the parole board and the correctional services so uh, these families approached the parole board and correctional services to get information uh, that could help them with their hearing. And instead, they prevented them from getting that information. Now, if that's not bad enough, then the government sought $19,000 in court costs from the families. So the families have to pay the court costs of a parole hearing? Is that, what's ha- is that what's happening here? 
And all of that in the wake of Paul Bernardo being transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison, that's bad enough. The hell that's been uh, the last couple of decades for these families have been enough. And now this? It's just bizarre. Let's bring in Timothy Danson, lawyer from the Mahaffey and French Families, and here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Uh, we're hearing this information that from the senator that uh, the, the French and Mahaffey families have been asked, uh, well, not only were they not given information about Bernard, uh, Bernardo for the parole hearing when they asked for it, but then the government sought $19,000 in court costs from the families. Is this accurate? When did this happen? Yeah, um, unfortunately and sadly, it is uh, accurate. And I have to say it was just devastating to the families that the government would try to extract $19,000 from them as a result of bringing um, a very responsible uh, piece of litigation, Access to Information Act request. And, uh, and, and we, you know, we were very, very surprised. The judge in the end ordered uh, $4,000 instead of the 19. And even that was uh, disturbing to us because there was no basis for cost to be awarded against the families. And interestingly enough, under the um, Access to Information Act, there's a unique provision that even the losing party uh, is entitled to their cost when the action is brought in good faith and raises issues of public interest. And the judge rejected that, which was um, disappointing. And then we appealed that to the Federal Court of Appeal. And on the eve of the uh, Federal Court of Appeal, um, the, the government appreciated that we were really going to shame them uh, for seeking costs against the families. And I guess they realized that that was going to prejudice their case. And as a result, they waived those costs. But in my view, they did it for the wrong reasons. They didn't do it because it was the right thing to do but they didn't want to be shamed in court for their position. So uh, at the end of the day, they don't have to pay anything, whether it's the 19 or the 4,000. That's correct. That's the end result, but, uh, but only after, um, you know, some, some, some strong words between us. Since when do, do a victim's family, does a victim's family have to pay for a parole hearing or the information that, I mean, my goodness, it's bad enough they have to go through this. Now they're getting charged to go through it? We, yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, we've, we had to formally bring, uh, when, when, when they're accessed information requests for the, you know, the records in, in, for Paul right. Bernardo, th- these are the very records that Paul Bernardo is relying upon uh, to persuade the parole board to be relieved from the consequences, the full consequences of his life sentence. So it, the, the, the families needed this information to properly prepare for the parole hearings. And quite frankly, the public has a right to know. These are, these are public hearings, and these are documents that are, that are discussed and presented at the parole hearings. So clearly the public has an interest. And, um, and, and when, when that was dismissed uh, on the basis of Paul Bernardo's privacy interests, which is another issue altogether, um, we brought uh, we, the only thing that was left for the families is to bring a judicial review in the federal court. And th- that's exactly what we did. We were unsuccessful in the first instance. Uh, we appealed that. We argued it in uh, the third week of uh, January of this year. And we're now waiting for a decision from the uh, federal court of appeal, which is going to provide us with a lot of guidance in terms of um, this, this statutory requirement for the government to do a principled and proportional weighing of the public interest against the specific privacy rights 
of the offender in question, which is Paul Bernardo. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the court determines that issue, because we have raised it front and center uh, for the government, uh, for, for corrections and the parole board, to define what exactly is the uh, privacy interest of Paul Bernardo in the very record that he relies upon at a public hearing uh, to win his freedom that trumps the public interest. And, uh, and you know, it's an important question, and uh, we'll see how the Federal Court of Appeal uh, determines that question. It's been on reserve for a while, um, but it's a very important issue, and we're not surprised that it's going to take the court a while to uh, determine the issues that were before it. We only have a few seconds left, so where are we with the actual transfer and what happened there and the reversal of that? Well, it would appear, from what I understand, uh, that they've appointed, the Corrections has appointed a three-person panel uh, to review the decision uh, with respect to the transfer. Uh, I don't put much stock in it. I don't know who the panel is, but clearly the, the commissioner herself had to be part of this decision. So is this a panel that's reviewing uh, a decision that their, own, that their boss participated in? Um, I'm not holding my breath unless, behind the scenes, and I'm hoping for this, that there is frank discussions uh, with uh, CSC by the minister and the prime minister's office uh, to do the right thing. And there's no question in my mind that um, that they have the jurisdiction, legal and political, to uh, direct that this decision be uh, reversed and that Paul Bernardo be sent back to maximum security at the Millhaven Penitentiary. Timothy Danson with his lawyer from the Hoffey and French families. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the update. Be well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. As of 10.58 this morning, summer here. Do you feel different? Huh? A little more spring in the step? No, I'm sorry, summer in the step. It is 5.38. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Always looking for your last word, 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. All right, we've been talking about this uh, since the beginning of the week. Uh, Obviously, a submarine, a submersible, which was going down and searching, looking around the Titanic and such with uh, a lot of rich tourists has gone missing, uh, have not heard from it since an hour and 45 minutes into uh, its journey. This is still considered a search and rescue mission, so say the Coast Guard, and uh, searchers detecting underwater noises in the last couple of days. Uh, Can't really tell too much about that, although they are zeroing in in those areas where the noises were detected. To get an update on all of this and where we are, let's bring in Kyle Benning, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News, who's covering the story, and with us now. Now, Kyle, thanks for the time. Uh, do, what do we know as far as where this submersible was in its journey to the wreck? I know it was an hour and 45 minutes into um, the journey when they lost contact. How long would it have taken to get to uh, the site of the Titanic? Were, were they close? How close are they? Scott, they were still quite a ways away from actually reaching the the wreckage site. From everything that I've seen online and and all the research I've done, it takes about three hours to actually reach uh, the the ocean floor. And from that point, they can turn on uh, the sub and and kind of uh, drive around and and power up and, and start looking for the Titanic at that point. So they hadn't even reached their full descent yet. And and from my understanding is the communication is supposed to take place every 15 minutes. And then after a, a number of times of 
the the ship on the surface not being able to hear from the sub, that's when they started to get concerned and, and start flag things with the Coast Guard. Uh, many are wondering why it's taking so long to find this con- this submersible, considering we know where the wreck is. But from what I understand, they don't just sit above it and drop a line. This is a very long descent over a, 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 a long distance. Oh, it's, it's about uh, four kilometers deep, so not exactly easy to find. And, and they're saying sometimes, even though we know where the Titanic wreck is, sometimes even that's hard to find. So the, the issue is, is there's no actual physical attachment to this sub, uh, to the, the ship up front. So it's, it's almost like finding a needle in a haystack. And, and that's another issue, too. And plus, we don't know if anything has gone wrong with the, the submersible as well. If the power is out, um, that's uh, one of the issues we might have seen as well, them not being able to kind of make their way around, which is why these signals that have come up uh, last night and this morning are so interesting because what's supposed to happen when uh, power goes out or any kind of need is happening is they're supposed to bang on the inside of the sub every Mm -hmm. 30 minutes. And this sends a signal to the sonar buoys, which were released earlier this week. And those are the signals that are expected to be, if it is the sub, if these are the sounds that are created by the sub, that it could be them. So we're trying to see what's happening, what's taking place, but everything is still unknown, and, and whether those sounds that have been captured are them or could be something else within the vast Atlantic Ocean. Uh, finding it is one thing. Rescuing or bringing it up from the from the bottom is another. Is there equipment heading to the scene that is capable of doing that? So that's actually taking place right now. From what we heard from the U.S. Coast Guard in their 1 o'clock press conferences, the Navy is currently sending... Uh, teams that can sort of go down and dive down and bring back up um, this this sub, as well as um, French ROVs, which are uh, remote-operated vehicles. Uh, so unmanned vehicle that can go down and actually try and find them. But obviously that remote vehicle wouldn't be able to help bring them up. But the Navy does have the capability of doing that if it can't come up itself. There are also private organizations and companies that have uh, this kind of ability as well, and those are all being directed to the scene and the area where they believe uh, the sub is. And I guess there's also the possibility that it's not necessarily under, but bobbing on the top somewhere. That's uh, very uh, possible as well. So there are quite a few resources just looking on the surface. Uh, obviously, once we get below the surface, it, it could be anywhere. But on the surface, we're talking about an area that's twice the size of Connecticut. So uh, not exactly uh, trying to find something the size of a minivan hmm. uh, within something twice the size of Connecticut, not exactly easy. So uh, from what we've heard today, there are going to be 10 ships just kind of surfacing the area as well as uh, the planes. Um, including Canadian Armed Forces planes that are searching from above as well. So several resources involved in trying to find uh, something the size of a minivan. Uh, Obviously, the main concern is the reserves of oxygen on board and that they are uh, obviously only have, uh, can sustain life for a certain amount of time. Um, Is there any other way, is there anything, any way to get oxygen to them if they find this craft other than bringing it up to the surface so that's a, a very difficult part from the inside they uh, the the five people within the actual sub can't get out because it's bolted from the outside so right. getting something into them isn't necessarily easy however uh, one of the 
people on the sub is, uh, I, I believe, is a, a Titanic expert. His name is Paul Henri Nargelet. He's been on 30 dives somewhat similar to this. So uh, within that 30 times, he's been receiving training. And, and even actually going into this, they would need training in terms of uh, dieting and, and different kind of safety protocols. Um, because of his experience, there is hope that uh, they can kind of find ways to conserve oxygen, which they would have been taught prior to this, uh, conserving food. Um, but just getting up to the surface, if it's even found, is going to be uh, an issue because if they're using oxygen at the regular rate, they will run out of oxygen by tomorrow morning. Uh, wow. Um, we'll leave it at that. Kyle Benning with his uh, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News covering the story of the Titan uh, submersible, which uh, has been lost in the area of the Titanic. Kyle, thanks so much for the update. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott. 10.58 this morning. Summer officially arrived. Tomorrow, the first full day of. There you go. Jump into the fun. If you've got a last word in you, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open, 905-645-3221. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. You know, when I hear the Beach Boys and I realize it's summer, who could not do well? <laughs> Honestly, I hear who, you. Can, who can not do absolutely. well when you hear that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, when you're talking to uh, Tim Danson, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey family. Who I did and, talk to today, by the way. Oh, did you? Good. I did, yeah. And uh, explaining to us the whole issue of uh, the family look, families looking for information for a parole hearing, uh, the government reluctant to give them that information, and then charging the family. Uh, 19K in court costs us the families and such. Uh, the judge eventually drops it to four, and then eventually it's gone. But man, oh man, people are asking, what the hell is going on when you see a Bernardo move from a maximum to medium uh, security prison with no explanation given? The government has no idea it's even going on, even though they were notified. And now, and now they're dinging the families when they're asking for information regarding a parole hearing? This is disgusting. Let me read you just a line from the email because I asked him about this very thing today. <clears throat> Excuse me, because I saw the GoFundMe that had started up for them and I thought, what the heck? Same thing you said. Uh, he said, the bottom line is the government walked this back and waived the cost. So nothing is actually owing. Yeah. So that part, okay, that's that's good. Uh, thank goodness. Yeah, after they realize, as he said to me just minutes ago, once they realize what a pure right. nightmare right. this would be for them, that, yeah, they yeah. canceled it. So yeah. Especially so, that they didn't even know what was going on in the first place. Right. So great that they walked it back. We're happy for that. It's terrific that they did that. And pardon me, I didn't even know you had Tim on. I was just coming in. I didn't hear that. I wish I'd heard that conversation. But you're right. How How is it possible that people who are in the government whoever it might be, lawyers, bureaucrats, politicians, whomever, would not have someone stand up and say, um, folks, just from a PR perspective here, yeah. maybe going after the families of French and Mahaffey is not an ideal vote-getting method. Like this is, th there are certain ones, Scott, that are complicated. There are certain issues that are tricky for politicians and bureaucrats and staffers. Hmm. This might be the easiest thing to say, you know, okay, technically, no. legally, we could go after no. this money. Legally, we could, but there is not a chance that we want to be the people who are going after the French and Mahaffey families. Are you insane? And yet somehow that, for somebody along the way anyway, that seemed to have been lost, at least for a time. 
Uh, and again, um, you know, you can debate whether what Bernardo's rights are, what they are. It should be so, zero, by the way. I, I agree with you 100%. But the other issue here is the government's issue and the fact that they knew about the transfer. So, well, they didn't. The, they were told, but apparently didn't get to the right ministers, uh, you know, whether it was months ahead of time or even a few days ahead of time. And then we find out this. I mean, it's just, it's one thing after another here. Um, you know, I, I don't know how, I, I've heard the explanation given in the last few days that, well, maybe people who are working for government right now are so young that they are not aware of who Paul Bernardo I heard that, was. I heard that today because there's been a lot of turnover. And let's not forget, the public service has increased by 30% since the Prime Minister took office. So a lot of people have retired. There's a lot of young people coming in. We were talking about this in regard to uh, the, the, the issue was uh, providing information to opposition politicians when they asked for it. And they were sort of adding their own editorial editorialization to it all and, and actually had stated... Uh, in a memo that, you know, the less we give the, is the better. Like, let where me, is this culture coming from? But let me just throw one thing at you here. So so all these people who are too young to understand, okay, fine. Um, but the Prime Minister's office, we learned in the last few days, was given this information even yep. before uh, the other offices got it. Who is the senior advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? Guy named Ben Chin who covered the Bernardo trial for City yeah. TV. You he was can't a journalist, you yeah. can't possibly so- somehow say that Ben Chin forgot. He was there doing a great job but doing it every single day. It's impossible that every single person in government staff didn't know or every single person is under 25 years old. It just that makes no sense. I I I'm not going to doubt that there are a couple or some people who are too young. I mean, look, I don't know every detail about every criminal who's ever crossed the path of the criminal court system in this country. I don't. But surely there are people who, in, who have worked in that time or been around for that time or even just the name, some names, you know, uh, pick, pick a Charles Manson. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't down in California when Charles Manson, but I know about Charles Manson. There are certain names that jump out. I just, th- it just seems somehow there is this blind spot and I don't get it. Thank goodness though. Thank goodness that the government actually dropped those legal fees on the French and Mahaffey families. Cause otherwise, you know, that today somebody would be, scr- there'd be another scrambling around going, well, uh, we didn't know we never got the memo. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and it seems to happen like on a daily basis, whether it's the prime minister, even talking yesterday, yesterday about the two, uh, uh, RCFA members that, that had perished and they hadn't been found yet. He's saying that they're dead and it's, they weren't discovered until today. I mean, yeah. well, the RCMP and the SNC Lavalin, it's the left hand has no idea what the right hand and, is doing And, you know, I'll, here. I'll cut him some slack on that. I mean, I, I'll look, that may have been a misspeak. So that one I will, I, you know, who knows? The plane, the helicopter went down. Prime Minister just, cannot misspeak uh, about somebody's death, I Scott. would agree. No, I, I mean, look, my God. I would agree with you that it's a bad idea. I, I, as I say, I'm going to, on that, I, yeah. can, I can understand that maybe... You misspoke on that one and oops, you don't want that to happen, but there's so many others. You can't misspeak on everything. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Thanks, Scott. Have a great show. See ya.
Uh, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This via email from Norm on Paul Bernardo. Scott, my blood is boiling on this piece of trash. I toured the Kingston Pen and was told we can't ask what cell that piece of work resided in because of his privacy. I wasn't looking to buy the space. Sign Norm. 99, keep right except to pass. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.